0: This is Counterculture with Marie Buskey, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie, your host, and I'm welcoming back to Reality Check Radio for a second time. First time on Counterculture, though. Simon Anderson, how are you and good morning?
1: Good morning. I'm very well. Delightful to see you again. Thank you for inviting me once again to your show.
0: I know. And when we spoke the first time, which was when I was covering breakfast several weeks ago, I said to you once we finished, I said, oh, I could feel that we could have a much bigger conversation. And here it is. We are going to have a good old chat. So firstly, for our listeners, um, we're going to recover some ground that we spoke about uh, back then on breakfast. You have a really fascinating story because up until March, you were just Simon Anderson, everyday Kiwi fella, living your life until one day you popped out to the park with your your 360 degree camera. And then what happened?
1: Yes, that's precisely correct. I went to uh, Albert Park to film the, the Posey Parker speeches and captured a significant amount of 360 degree footage, which went viral overnight and that millions of people ended up viewing around the world. Clips from it have been used as evidential material in court cases for police complaints and so on and so forth. So my claim to fame is that I was just this guy with a camera who ended up capturing some footage which became rather prominent.
0: Mm. So what uh, was the motivation to go to Albert Park that day?
1: I had intended to climb Kilimanjaro in July, do some safariing and some diving in Zanzibar and lovely things like that. And I, I wanted to learn how to use my camera before the trip. In the end, I've delayed that trip by a year. So it was just a whole bunch of accidents that led, led me there.
0: Mm. One of the things we did touch on last time was... And you've written this wonderful article too, which you've sent a forward copy to me of, and it was one of the things that you said in there in regards to what you were discovering over the news over the next few days was what was being portrayed in the media, betrayed what you saw in the footage that you captured. Do you want to sort of describe that a little bit more for our listeners?
1: Sure. That was really astonishing how the ruling Labour Green regime and their media allies were over the the nightly news that night and over the next two days were constructing a false narrative that the riot in Albert Park, conducted by the Rainbow community and their allies, had been a peaceful protest. This was particularly apparent from state-owned media and some of the Green Party and Labour Party MPs who were participants in that crowd. I was very conscious that the material that I had directly contradicted that narrative. So here's the problem, it's a new camera and I wasn't precisely certain how to export material from it and it took me a couple of days to learn. And then I started publishing footage which did directly show the violence that that occurred there and the just the rabid nature of the crowd that were assaulting women and doing everything that they possibly could to get to Posey Parker and inflict harm upon her. I published numerous clips from that. And what I am take a, a certain amount of pride from is that I went a long way to shutting down that narrative. I don't think that the mainstream media, rather legacy media, particularly the the Green Party, could get away from the story fast enough.
0: No. And there was certainly a shift once that footage went out. And I think once too, international outlets picked up the footage more readily than the domestic ones.
1: Yeah. So, uh, and that's really interesting. So, whenever I capture anything interesting with my camera, it's really fascinating. The people that I speak with domestically are people such as yourself, Elliot Akeley, Chris Lynch, the platform more independent media the organizations that don't ever contact me are tv1 tv3 stuff the spin-off none of these organizations have any any interest internationally it's a completely different story where i get requests for syndication from organizations like Reuters and associated press and al jazeera there's a real interest in it and i think it, it, it demonstrates in my opinion just the inherent bias that we have in this country amongst the legacy media.
0: Mm. Well, it's a very small community, and we've certainly discovered it since we've had this station, that there is a club, and we're certainly not in it, Simon. So it is quite an interesting thing to observe so, so you've captured the footage at Albert Park, but since then you have captured a lot of footage, like you've gone to a variety of different events. So describe some of those that you've gone to in recent months and some of the things that you've observed in that time.
1: Okay, well, I, I think the, the primary one you're probably interested in is the 20th of September uh, Let Women Speak event in St Patrick's Square, which Posey Parker was intending to attend and to coincide with the uh, a court appearance in relation to one of her assailants in March. Now, unfortunately, she didn't feel safe enough to return to New Zealand for reasons that we discussed previously, I think, about um, the OIA responses that, mm. that I released. Because of that, I felt like I have uh, a civic duty and a moral obligation to do what I could to ensure the safety of the women that would be attending to speak or to rather and to listen at that event. And my thinking was that uh, subsequent to Albert Park, the rainbow community who had behaved so abominably and assaulted so many people were particularly cognizant now of the damage that footage of that sort of behaviour would do. And also that the police might be able to be embarrassed into this time, ensuring that pe- the peace was kept. So to, to achieve that objective, what I did was form a team of volunteers to film the event and made it very public that we were going to do so. That was an objective that that I think we achieved. We We captured some good footage and I think that by being very visible, we discouraged any misbehaviour.
0: Do you feel that that by capturing that footage back on the March 25, that you've actually seen, as you said, you saw on the 20th of September a change in attitudes, but also too there was the Manawahini Korero Children's Rally in Wellington, and only a tiny group, Of protesters turned up for that which I saw in media and I've spoken to, in fact I'm speaking to Helen Houghton too today and do you feel that because you're there capturing that bad behaviour, if it were to occur that that has actually been enough of a deterrent for those who are wanting to more than just protest but to infringe on people's right to speak they're finding it, no, we need to step back or
1: I, I hope so I hope so, yes. Well, I I hope that that's the case, and I also hope that it encourages the police to do a better job than they did in March. And in their defence, it was certainly the case in St Patrick's Square that they did so. They were very good. They were very, very well organised. They knew precisely where they needed to be. But more than that, they knew precisely who the threat was. Mm. You know, it wasn't the case that the police were there having to keep angry women from from misbehaving in any regard.
0: So we have now in the process of a political switch, and whilst we're just still in the limbo in terms of ironing out the details, as it were, in your gut now, having sort of been following this for a while, what are your sort of thoughts in terms of what we will see in terms of public discourse, particularly in the New Zealand landscape over the next little bit? It is certainly very much in one direction for the last six years. Do you feel that the tide may start turning with a change of government?
1: Well, I think one should hope. Uh, I think that our national discourse, it seems to me, has become increasingly polarised and it has tended to be very much a left-wing cancel culture agenda, which has been in the ascendancy. And one might hope that with the change of government we might return to a more rational exchange of ideas.
0: So that cancel culture and I mean, did that affect you personally? Did they come after you?
1: Yes, I mean, it's certainly the case that that there are sections of the community and to be fair sections of the authorities that are not particularly pleased that I've been doing things like publishing witness statements, OIA responses, my own footage of some of these events, footage from other photographers who wish to remain anonymous and so on, people who are not best pleased. Conversely, there are a lot of people who are appreciative. But the interesting thing, Marie, is to be now recognised in public to no longer, you know, on, on March 25th, I was a private citizen and now I'm, I'm well known.
0: The days of flying under the radar are no longer able to be had. Exactly. Yeah, it is very interesting to see that polarisation. And one of the little observations that I've had has been that the population seems to be quite getting quite groomed to be in a flight and fight type response. So we saw it using with fear with COVID. Did you see any of the Lord Sumption features whilst he was in the country?
1: I caught some small pieces of it, but I'm unfamiliar. His work, and he's uh, he's he's a very wise and very insightful man.
0: Yeah, he is very much so. And he said in an interview with Jack Tame that fear, the fear that was used during the pandemic in order to suppress the population, you know, is a is a very dangerous thing. But how do you keep that fear going once the pandemic has gone? Where is that fear applied? And an observation I've had certainly has been it's been applied then with that division, with the, the war in Europe and Russia and Ukraine. And I just can't help feeling that they're now using, even politically here in this country, that they're trying to weaponize the dreadful conflict in the Middle East in the same way that they used that fear response during COVID and the fear response again With Europe, they're now trying to keep the population on eggshells and keep them on their toes and jittery and and wanting to to consume media in order to keep us scared.
1: I I think that's probably right. And I'm I'm reminded of Niccolò Machiavelli's The Prince, which, you know, 600 years ago, and the, the quote that most people know from it is that it is better to be feared than to be loved. And it's the real politic, of the Middle Ages, and it's not how discourse and a liberal democracy should operate, in my opinion. No. What I think should happen is that the Fourth Estate should present all of the information neutrally and for those interested to be able to to discuss it in an open and respectful manner. So any thoughts of giving up the day job and chucking yourself into
0: this full time?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> no it's, it's, it's a lot less remunerative.
0: <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. i I, I often joke that with this job, I am um, it's better than it's cheaper than therapy because at least they pay me to pay interest in conversations and with fascinating people. So that's always a good thing, isn't it? Have you been following much of the protests around the conflict in the Middle East? What are your, some of your thoughts there?
1: I have been. So I've been filming weekend after weekend. Pro Palestine demonstrations. And those have been an an, an interesting experience. Although I, I, I do have to add that I didn't attend the one in the domain where Phil Twyford and Chloe Swarbrook gave very, very contrasting speeches, one of which alarmed me greatly. The two that I've attended have been great. For the first one, I was there with another photographer. What's happening at demonstrations these days is that for photographers, we, we need to operate in pairs so that uh, we can kind of back one another up a little bit. And I, I've been doing that. And for the, for the first pro-Palestine demonstration, it was lovely. You have the majority of the crowd are Muslim people there with their families, having a nice day out in the sunshine, exercising their democratic right to express an opinion. And you'll see from some of the footage that I shot, I allow the demonstration to get, to get a perception of the size of it. I stand still, for instance, on Queen Street and allow the demonstration to, to walk around me so that you can get a perception of the crowd. And both that weekend and the subsequent weekend, it was lots and lots of smiley, happy people waving to the camera and just being, absolutely lovely. The organisers of the demonstration, we contacted them subsequently to make our footage available for any purpose that they wished to make it, and they were thoroughly appreciative of our efforts. Conversely, there is a section of the crowd of the perpetually aggrieved, the sort of people who were agitating against women's rights in Albert Park, and they seem to have coalesced around organisations like the Unite Trade Union and the Green Party. And some of their behaviour was very, very contrasting. They're much more confrontational and aggressive.
0: Would these be the ones that sort of incited the flag burnings and such?
1: No, the flag destruction was Muslim people. And have you you seen the overhead footage that I shot? Not
0: the overhead footage, no.
1: Okay. all right. Well, it's really quite funny because my opinion, my footage of that event is just the very, very best. But it just it hasn't seemed to have done too much traction. Anyway, that was a bit of a concern last weekend that there were some of the younger Muslim teenagers were masking up. Now, the previous weekend, there was absolutely no Muslim people with their face covered. The only people with their that with their faces covered were those left wing activists, Unite you know, Trade Union people. You know they use COVID masks and hoods to disguise their identities. But this time there were four or five. And what is more concerning for me is looking at the footage that I've seen from the photographers that I know who were in the domain. Is that that was much more prominent that there were muslim youth masked up like that and that's a poor sign i think because it points to the potential for there to be misunderstandings that that could lead to aggressive incident incidents i'm also very i'm very very watchful of what's happening in the united kingdom at the moment i think for armistice day and for remembrance day for there to be, there's the potential for conflict between what would one say, between the the Muslim community and the, for want of a better term, Indigenous British community who are looking to achieve very, very different objectives with the Cenotaph in Whitehall, a potential centre of gravity for that conflict to, to occur. And if that happens, I'm very, very concerned that there will be civil unrest would spread to other Western cities. And I'm very, very hopeful that won't occur here. What, from my opinion, I think for countries like us that are so far away and so uninvolved in in this conflict that it is right and proper for us to be calling for the protection of civilians, for peaceful resolution to and to not take sides, unfortunately, the rhetoric that that I've been seeing on social media, hearing from people around the traps, decreasingly reflects that sentiment. Mm.
0: It's something that you see before in terms of families. You know, there were families and communities out there expressing their concern. What I am sort of observing is a distinct difference between that group of people, the, the actual community, and those activists and so-called allies, and in adverted commas, who are using the cause to actually forward their own agendas as opposed to, you know, supporting, actually genuinely and authentically supporting the community that's with them right there, right now. Do you get that feeling when you've observed those groups?
1: That's an insightful observation, Marie. You know, there's a real difference between a Muslim husband and wife pushing a pram with their child in it inside a demonstration, and some of these allies, as as you say, masked up, holding signs attached to pieces of 4x2, which could rapidly become a weapon, seeking to promote their own agenda. And I'm very much seeing that, and I, I don't think it's helpful.
0: Mm. Certainly not. I I just have this feeling like I've had this uneasiness in recent weeks that I feel like that as you, and it's interesting, your thoughts on the UK, actually, and I think you could be onto something there. And I know that there was tensions too, there's tensions right across Central Europe with the unmitigated massive flood of immigration there since sort of what, 2015, 2016 and the Swedish tourists that were killed in Brussels, and it makes me wonder that there will be one more incident if something were to happen in the United Kingdom that we would be staring down riots a la Black Lives Matter 2020 all over again. I just sort of have this uneasy feeling that something like that could start, and those agitators potentially would deliberately create something in order to, you know, further an agenda or further unrest. I I don't know. I mean, these are just I'm just spitballing out loud here. But these are certain it's certainly something that I'm observing. It's sort of because I stand I try to stand back because it's difficult when you when you're in it you get very passionate about it. And so I'm so I'm trying to stand back and look at the trends. And I can't help feeling I'm seeing these trends from 2020 starting all over again.
1: I concur. It feels to me. Like we're we're sitting on, on a uh, what's the term tinderbox, and all it's going to take is for the wrong match to be struck, and it's going to be conflagration, mm. um, both here and overseas. And I think that Europe's in a particular circumstance where you have a number of cultures rubbing up against each other currently in a manner which is not convivial, and there's a lot of the angry people in the world. But I'm also conscious that none of these things are our fight. One of the wonderful things about living in a country like New Zealand is that we have always tended to have a lot more cultural cohesion. Uh, you, you know what it's like, Like right? You go to, even if you go to Australia, it's possible for immigrant communities, because their populations are so much larger, to gather in one area Shop in their traditional shops, go to schools that are taught in their native languages, and it's kind of never the twain shall meet. There's less of a need for integration between communities when immigration occurs in those large numbers. And in, in New Zealand, it's never really been like that. You know, it's. I mean, I'm sure it was the same for you. Like, I, you know, I I went through school. I I had Chinese friends who were sixth generation Kiwis. I played sports with my Maori and Samoan friends I'd get invited to Hindu weddings or it's just the way that New Zealand was and it was and and I hope it still is and it was all rather lovely it's a shame if that changes and I and I suspect that the, the last 6 years of a government which has been rather focused on identity politics that cohesion may have been negatively impacted
0: well it's when you've got a government that's trying to conflate identity with culture And it's always going to be a dangerous thing. and Yeah, I I agree. So where to from here? I mean, have you got anything that you're going to keep an eye on between now and Christmas in terms of, I mean, you mentioned the UK, but closer to home, what are some of the things closer to home that you're keeping a little eye on?
1: Uh, Well, the publication that uh, you mentioned earlier that has kindly invited me to become a columnist, it's really interesting. They... They're uh, a libertarian publication, kind of traditional libertarian publication, and they're an Australian outfit. And I'm sure you are as aware as I am, excuse me, that culturally the Australian public takes very little interest in New Zealand affairs. I don't think too many Australians are accustomed to the idea that they could learn anything from New Zealand. So when I was approached by that publication, I said, okay, well, look, you know, I'm happy to write about New Zealand affairs for the consumption of an Australian audience. And they were adamant that I shouldn't do that, which I found really, really surprising. And they said that there is a a growing interest in New New Zealand affairs because they see us as this, this sort of social experiment that has gone so far down the path of wokeism, that we can be used as a lesson to show the rest of the world what not to do. So they've given me a program of stuff that they'd like me to be writing about. I'll be I'll be writing one or two articles a month for them about those sorts of things. So in answer to your question, I'll be following uh, developments around the formation of the next government and their policy platform. I will be, as I always do, backing up other photographers in sketchy circumstances where they, they feel that they they need the support and moving, I think, perhaps a little little bit away from photography and more into what I'm better at doing, which is writing about things.
0: I will be absolutely fascinated to read it. So what's the name of the uh, publication?
1: It's Liberty Itch.
0: Liberty Itch. We will make sure with the resources and the wonderful Lizard Inbox that we have that link. So if people want to check that out, they'll they can grab that link from us. It's interesting you say about the policies with the new government. So I had a conversation with some friends um, before we caught up today. And one of the things I find really fascinating, because I've been watching the media coverage quite closely across the election, and whilst they've been waiting to find out what the special votes would be. And one of the things that I've always found really fascinating is initially was the disbelief by many of the outcome of the election result, for for starters. And then now the multiple commentators over the weekend cited the great winner of the special votes was Departe Māori because they've now created this overhang. And I just find that utterly fascinating because, for me, the great winner was the fact that Winston Peters is now going to be guaranteed... As being required to create and form a coalition government, and it's almost like he's become Voldemort. They to not speak his name because he's back. You know, it's. Uh, I find it rather fascinating. What have you? What were your thoughts of the specials in that coming in over the weekend, or just prior to
1: the yeah, weekend? I agree, I, and I think one of the wonderful aspects of the lovable rogue that is Winston Peters is that he doesn't endear himself particularly well to the media he says look i don't want to talk about that go away i think that's fantastic in terms of the maori electorates i thought they did rather well Hmm. doing that by splitting between electorate and party in that manner uh Hmm. it has served their purpose well i think that was um that was smart politicking
0: yeah i i have a theory I have a theory, and I have a theory that I think there's going to be de- defections from the Labour Party, Māori caucus, into Te Party Māori, and I think that there is a new left bloc forming, in the Labour Party are not going to be the major party
1: in it. Well, I would certainly love to see that, and I think it would be righteous judgment upon their house uh, mm. after the last six years, but that's just my political opinion. Yeah, um, it's... Yeah, it's,
0: it will be interesting to see. And it, it, I think there is lots of, as you said, it's interesting that the Liberty Itch has that sort of thought in regards to seeing where we, we're going, because I think to a certain extent that they are correct. And one of the elements that I know I talk about a lot is the rise of identity politics within Maori culture and Māoridom, because it's creating a schism there, and it's something that Te Mari have gone and latched onto and used it to best advantage, and it will be interesting to see how Māori handle this, whether or not they will use it as a vehicle to try and achieve what it is that they want to achieve, because so many of them are not down with this element, and they but they don't necessarily speak up they keep very very quiet so it's yeah there's there's also a lot going on in that space as well which i'm you know hoping to follow so
1: well i i hope you do with the marvelous di landi your your other guest i would certainly defer to her greater expertise in these matters whenever i've had opportunity to either speak with her or listen to her. It's, it's voices like hers which are, to my mind, the wisest to listen to. And some of the rhetoric that we, we see from Te Pāti Māori is unhelpful and unnecessarily divisive, in, in my opinion. And, and I don't think that they're as representative, perhaps, of broader Māori interests as as they once were. But as I say, I, I defer to other voices.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which very much is what I have been doing. And there is it's interesting too with those Māori electors as well, because there's not a lot of choice. And ones like Die and Karina have see, they've come off the Mori role because there isn't enough choice. And if those seats do continue to exist, and I know that the ACT party would love to see them disappear, but if they do continue with election cycles, it will be interesting to see whether or not uh, New Zealand First did what they did way back, I think, was it in the late 90s or early noughties, where they, in fact, held five of those Māori seats at one time because they were able to... You can get a much greater swing when you're dealing with a much, much smaller electorate, which is what you are essentially doing. So, yeah, it'd be quite fascinating. Well Simon, it's been such a joy to chat to you anything else that you're going to be up to before we disappear that you'd like to share with us in terms of where people can find you if they want to interact with your content today?
1: Uh, okay well um this week and I uh, you'll be able to find my column my first column which is rather cringy because it's it's they ask that I introduce myself by telling a story so it's it's rather autobiographical and I I promise that I won't write like that for them evermore. You can find my Twitter account. I'm at SimonRAnderson1, and you can find my my video f- content at SimonRAnderson on YouTube.
0: Fantastic.
1: And, th- and thank you for having me on once again, Marie. It's just been delightful to speak with you.
0: Oh, it's always a joy to speak to you. This has been Simon Anderson here on Reality Check Radio. Don't disappear, of course. There's still more excellent content here to come, including Marty and I. We're going to be chewing over that decision, uh, those special votes decisions coming up post-election. That's all still here to come with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio.
1: This is Counterculture with Marie Busky.
0: Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio.